our lives in on this earth. We want to see his glory come. We want to be transformed, Father, from glory to glory in the very image of Christ. We want to see his glory. We want to live it out, Lord God. We want to be incubated in it, drenched in it, allowing who he is to be the very substance of who we are that we would be transformed, that we would be like him. The Father, this world would see Jesus in us. And all we can say, God, is hallelujah. This is your doing. Our hearts are yielded to you right now, God. As we look into your word, would you speak truth into our inner man? Would you allow your word to be applied precisely to to open up our hearts and plant that truth in our hearts, God. And I'm asking you and appealing to you, Spirit of God, that you would do this because we can. And I just ask you, Lord, help us as feeble as we are to not just be hearers but doers of your word, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches through your word right now and we give you praise and glory and honor for what you're about to do and we thank you for what you're doing right now during our time of worship may we see Jesus unveiled in all his glory in Jesus name amen amen awesome you may be seated Uh, this morning, we're going to be going through Acts, just, just, excuse me, well, we're going to be going through the very beginning of Revelation chapter 2. So turn in there in your Bibles, if you will. We're going to be looking at the very first letter. We looked at chapter 1. I'm going to reference that in a few minutes. But we're going to be looking at just the first seven verses, the letter to the Ephesians, this morning. Now, if you've ever been to my house you'll know that about four years ago, we did some re-landscaping. And one of the things was we just crucified the tree in our side yard. It was just so huge, you would have to duck to go to walk under it. And the kids uh, found it a lot of fun, but us adults couldn't chase the little ones under there because we'd have to run like this to chase them. So we, wow, they just... They just trimmed that thing. It looked like a huge broccoli stick, right? And it's filling out, but we re-landscaped around the tree. Now, around the tree, the first couple of years, I used marigolds. And last year, and, and honestly, and we put a bench there, and we did some pavers, and, and I, I think it looked really nice. I loved it. Um, first time we've ever done major landscaping. We did some other stuff. But <clears throat> last year... Uh, I, I realized these marigolds weren't lasting the whole season, probably because there's more shade, so I want to find a, 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 a plant that does better in shade. So I got some impatience. And I got impatient with my impatience, and here's why. They were they're just dying. They looked terrible. And so I'm going to just tell you, I went around, and I just yanked them up. I just pulled them up, almost all of them, and it looked terrible. Now, most people don't go to the drastic measures that I did and just yank up all the plants. You might step back and say, oh, Mike, what did you just do? I pulled them up, 
because some of them were diseased, some of them were just dying, and some of them, my cursed squirrels got to. They just love to dig at the roots. So I, I did something a little different this past year, and if you were to visit my house, you would actually look under a tree, and I personally think you would say, I really love that. It looks beautiful, because all of my sun patients, I switched to sun patients, just a different breed, if you will, and they're thriving. They're, in my, they're huge compared to last year, and I, I'm so excited about that. I really am. I'm going to read a, a verse to you that when we first read it and I explain it to you, you're going to step back and you're going to say, oh, oh. kind of shuck, Jesus, really? I'm going to read that verse to you. It's chapter two, verse five. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I want you, I, I want for, before I dig into it, I want you to see something because this, cha- th- this letter is drastic to the point where I'm titling this sermon toxic. Verse five. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Exclamation. Now, the exclamation mark's not in the Greek, but I appreciate its presence here. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. Listen to this. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, some of you aren't going, quite yet, because you're thinking, okay, yeah, I've got a lampstand on my fireplace mantle, and Jesus, I'm going to come and remove your golden lampstand. Not a big deal. Well, here's what a lampstand is. The lampstand, according to the end of chapter one, is the church. Now, understand, it's not the local church. These letters are not written to the local church. Does that shock you? These letters are written to the city church. The city church. Jesus is saying to the city church, which is made up of a bunch of local churches, he is saying that if this continues, if this issue that I'm about to preach on and and read to you from the scriptures, if this continues on, you will become so toxic, I will need to remove your church. I will need to remove the expression of my presence in this city. Does that not shock you? Jesus. But that's the local expression of of who you are. And I'm just going to word it this way before I dig into the message. It is because the Ephesian church had become so toxic that their presence was worse than their absence. What is going on? Let me just caution you as I go through this sermon. Many local churches, not city churches, that I'm aware of, local churches have been vastly impacted by COVID. (laughs) Some of them have shut their doors. Let's not make the mistake of, of, of looking at the corollary and saying the corollary of this truth is correct. You know what the corollary is? It's kind of reading it backwards. He's saying, because of this problem, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And just because some local churches have closed their doors does not mean it was because they were like this Ephesian church. Now, do, do you see that? So I want us to just I want to throw out some caution there. And let me just say this. As I preach through this message, I want to walk carefully, 
but I want to walk prophetically as well. Because this passage says so much to our generation today. Now, I realize that there are, are, are some who, when they read through these seven letters, they have viewed each of the seven letters as representing a certain time frame or epoch in church history. Generally, the Ephesian church, which is the first one, would represent the first few centuries of the early church. Laodicea, excuse me, would then, which is the seventh church, would represent the end times church. And my challenge to you is that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the series is called Unveiling Jesus. And I think you're going to find out as we go through this. <laughs> but the, this revelation, the, the book of Revelation, isn't just about the end times. I, I'm not going to say there isn't some in there. But there are those who, when they look through the book of Revelation, there's this much about the end times. And I would say, I, I think there's about this much. It is there, but let's not make the mistake of saying there's this much so that when we go through the book of Revelation, there are those that look at the, even these seven letters and say, this is all about the end times. See, it's not. It is about right now, whether we're in the end times or not. It's about right now. 300 years ago, this letter was about then. A hundred years from now, should Jesus tarry, it's going to be about then. So let me just say that these seven letters are not necessarily the unfolding of church history, but rather they are applicable, all seven, for every generation. Number two, we see in the very end of chapter one this concept of lampstand and stars. And actually, as I read this chapter, we're going to see that that is what Jesus latches onto. These two images of the lampstand and the stars. We'll get there in just a moment. Many have said, as you, as you would look at verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? This word angel or angelos means either messenger or literally angel, since angels are messengers. It's used about 200 times in the New Testament. Five times it refers to a human messenger, and three of those five is actually John the Baptist. And in the three, in three of the Gospels, they, it, 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 it's the same wording. And it uses this word angelos, meaning messenger, the messenger of the Lord. And John the Baptist was that messenger of the Lord. Okay? And I'm only mentioning this to you because it's rarely translated as a human messenger. Though I have to concede it, it is in certain places. The other, what, 195 plus times, it refers to a literal angel. Now, some have supposed that this is referring to, to the angel of these churches, that Jesus is simply having John dictate it and through this messenger take the letter to the city. I'm not sure that's the proper way to view it. Some have suggested that maybe the messenger of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, maybe they are like the senior pastor. The problem, though, is then... Jesus is writing a letter to the senior pastor of an entire city church that's composed of a lot of local churches. 
I think we have to be careful with that because nowhere in Scripture does it speak about such a church position. It talks about overseers and elders and pastors in local churches, but not one in a city church. Actually, to the book of to, to the Philippians, he says to the overseers and the deacons, right? Or I, I greet them, he says. So let's realize that if we go that route, it's just not a principle that's found in scripture, that this letter would be written to a single person that oversees the, ch the church in a certain city. I personally prefer that this is actually written to an angel. And you might step back and say, whoa, say that again? So let me say it again, that it's actually written to an angel. Do you realize in Daniel, and I'm going to need to explain myself, right? In Daniel chapter 10, we actually see this concept of what some people have used the term territorial spirits. And by that, it's because that the angel that is coming to Daniel to give him the word of the Lord, he says that he had to fight the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Now, can I suggest that he did not fight the literal human ruler of either of those empires, but that he fought a spirit, a demon, if you will. And that is why he was delayed, as he tells Daniel. Then he talks about Michael the archangel and calls him the prince of of Israel. Now, let me suggest to you, and I'm not going to go off on some theological focus here. I'm not, because so little is in the scripture with regard to angels and demons. But let me say this, there's enough. So I'm not going to camp out here, but I will say this, that even as Michael is the prince of Israel, he is in essence their guardian that it would seem to me that as we're reading through these letters that there is an angel, that God has actually assigned a messenger that ministers to the heirs of salvation, as Hebrews 1 says. And they are in a hierarchy, and we understand that there is a hierarchy in the spirit realm. There just is, church. And again, I'm not going to get off into that, but we do realize there is. That then these angels with other angels under them are seeking to minister to the heirs of salvation. Whatever that would look like, Scripture does not talk about it. Back in the 70s, they started talking about commanding angels. When you pray, start commanding angels. See, only God commands angels. Let's not go down that road of heresy, okay? But let's realize that they are seeking to minister, and Jesus is writing a letter to them, and therefore there is a sense of authority. Now, don't get me wrong. These, these letters are spoken to the people of the church. But God has placed an angel to help the church minister to the heirs of salvation and help them walk in it. We're not going through this alone. Jesus Christ is in our midst helping us. And let me just say this very simply, however God does it, his angels minister to us as well. This is important. Let's, let's read this letter, starting with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know 
that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Can you hear the commendation in Jesus' voice to the church here? Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Church, there is so much in this letter, so much richness. We could look at every verse in depth, and I could probably preach on this for the next couple of weeks. It's just that the Lord hasn't shown me that. We're going to try and do this in one week and actually in the next 30 minutes. You're praying for me right now. Thank you. Each letter begins generally with two characteristics of Jesus that John saw in chapter one. If you remember, he hears a voice behind him. He turns around and he beholds Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus as Jesus walked in his earthly ministry he, he, he doesn't see that. Jesus didn't walk around with this flowing robe with his eyes like spotlights, his hair flowing white. He wasn't that old. Um, I'm getting there. Um, some of you think I'm already there. It, it, it Look closer. There's still some pepper there, okay, just so you know. And, but but th- this is not a picture of Jesus in his earthly ministry, so it is symbolic. So when John, or I should say Jesus, when Jesus focuses on, on two, it, sometimes there's one, sometimes there's three, but generally for most of them, there's two symbols that Jesus focuses on. He does it for a reason. And every church, he focuses on two different ones. But they're, they're, they're different. But here's what you need to know. They are very specific and even prophetic at points for what the church is going through and what Jesus addresses the church. We're going to see this. At the end of every letter, there is always this refrain, to him who overcomes. So in view of this, generally commendations, we're going to find that mm, some of them, there's no commendations at all. There's just rebukes and challenges. Then he concludes always, to him who overcomes. And church, this is a firm challenge for us this morning. But hold on to this. If you overcome, then... There is a promise, and every single letter has a promise, a beautiful promise attached to it. For this one, it has to do with the right to eat from the tree of life. Wow, is there so much just in that concept? What is the tree of life, and where do we see it? And if we have time, we might get into that. But wow, the promise basically is all of the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth at our disposal. We become heirs to this real life that we were created for. 
You weren't just created for this earthly life in which, God bless you if you live 70, 80, 90 years or 100 years. Awesome. I think the oldest person who's ever lived is, at least in, in our general time frame, I know there's Methuselah, I understand that, is what, about 112 years? I, I think I heard someone, they break the, the Guinness Book of World Records. And the truth, though, is the life that we're promised, this eternal life in his presence forever and ever and ever without end is awesome. And man, everything, though, that we do in this life impacts then. Eat from this tree now. Allow Jesus to give you that right because you overcome to that tree in which its leaves, there's healing for all the nations. We see a symbol of this in Ezekiel 47 with the river that flows towards the Dead Sea. And wherever that river goes, it brings life. These, there's not just one, but there's many fruit trees bearing fruit in its season, like the at the very end of, of, of this book, in the last chapter, you see this picture of the tree of life. There's one tree, and it's rooted on both sides of the river of life. And it brings forth 12 crops of fruit. So every month, Revelation uses that number 12 that represents or symbolizes the people of God throughout. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Wow, again, so much. This is your promise. Okay, maybe I'll just preach on the tree of life one day. Probably end up being three sermons, but richness in there. Let's go back to the beginning, though. It's written to the church, the angel overseeing and ministering with many, many other angels to help them walk in this. But he focuses on two symbols. The first one is that is the seven lampstands. Um, Excuse me, the first one is the seven stars. And those seven stars are the angels, so I'm not going to get into those. But the second, that again has to do with authority, because in which hand are the seven stars? In Jesus' left hand? They're in his right hand. And when you search the scriptures about this concept of the right hand, it has to do with authority. Jesus has authority over all of these angels, as they are now going to minister to the heirs of salvation and help them walk in this. As, as God commands and directs, understand. And so the second thing is that he, is, he says, he said to walk among the lampstands. There's seven golden lampstands and Jesus is walking among them. Not to demonstrate his amazing dexterity to not knock them over, but rather that he is in their midst, his presence is there and therefore he knows all about them. He peers into every church and he's able to see very clearly the good, but also the bad. Jesus knows. See, that's why it begins here. I know your deeds. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. See, it's because he is the one that's walking amongst the lampstands and he knows the lampstands and he is there in their midst. Jesus begins a commendation. So understand that there is so much good in this church. There truly is. But there's also something highly toxic we're going to get to in just a moment that he addresses. So 
He congratulates them, commends them for their hard work. See, they have labored for the kingdom, church. Now understand, before I go any further, I forgot to mention this to you. This isn't, this isn't a group of liberal or, or um, um, it's not a, a description of Christians, or at least people who have the name Christian, but really aren't. They're not what they call nominal Christians. I'm a Christian when in actuality they're not. I mean, there are plenty of those in the United States of America. Understand that. But he, that, that's not who he's speaking to. If he were, and he calls them to repentance, would he word it this way? Repent and do the things you did at first? Or wouldn't he say, repent and give your hearts to me. Repent and truly believe. Repent and look to me that this concept of good works is reserved for those who are in Christ because we're the ones empowered to do those good deeds. Not the nominal Christians, the Christians in name only. I'm going to suggest to you that he is speaking to the true church here. Secondly, as you go through some of these letters, it's as if he speaks to sometimes two or three groups. He, rebu- he says, this is, I don't like this that I'm seeing, but some of you walk this way and you're dressed in clean, spotless robes and he commends them. So there's two groups, but here there's one group. He doesn't distinguish between them. There's one group. And to that one group, he says, way to go. You're walking in good deeds. You're persevering, even when it's hard. You cast out and you call out wicked men, wolves among sheep's clothing, wolves with sheep's clothing. You call them out, even by name, probably, and you identify who these wicked men are. And in calling them out, draw attention to it. You recognize those who are like clouds without rain, as Jude says. Among you, wandering stars in the universe, twice dead, as Jude describes them. That you recognize. Those who claim to be apostles, but they're really not, you know who they, you put them to the test. Can I just say this in 30 seconds? Can I just suggest to you that the apostles that are mentioned in Scripture are not simply the 12 apostles. There were other apostles. And because of that and other Scripture passages, I think it is fair to conclude that there are apostles even today. They may not be described as the 12 apostles. That is a specific category. And they're even described as part of the New Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into that in chapter 21. So they are a separate group. The other apostles like Barnabas and Timothy and Silas, they were apostles as well, just on a a different category. See, if there were just 12, I'm almost at 30 seconds now, he would have said, there is no test. The only test is, I'm sorry, what's your name? Because if your name isn't one of the 12, you're not one of the 12 apostles. Simple. But there is something about how these men lived and how the Spirit of God worked through them. That's how they were tested. They were assumed. These men, they knew the word. They knew truth. The Ephesian church knew the truth. Listen to this. Of course they would, because who ministered there for three years? Do you remember? 
Paul, Paul the apostle, was there for three years with his apostolic entourage ministering truth to them. About almost 10 years later, Timothy is dropped off there by Paul. We read about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I left you in Ephesus to put things in order and and gives them certain charges. Timothy was left in Ephesus. Timothy carries on that apostolic ministry. Tradition tells us that John the apostle, this John, was actually living. His place of residence was in Ephesus. Some debate whether it was after Patmos is is, uh, uh, being exiled to Patmos because he didn't die on the island of Patmos. He was eventually released. Or some would say he lived there before. Regardless, there was a ministry even by the apostle John, the apostle of love. He ministered there to them. I, I don't think that he ministered to them right before he went to Patmos, regardless. Three apostles ministering to them. See, they knew the truth, church. They were grounded in the truth. They tested those who claimed to be apostles, but were not. They endured, listen to this, they endured hardships for the name of Jesus. They did it for Jesus. There was persecution, especially about the time of the writing, I'm going to say about 95 AD for the writing of of this letter, and it's the revelation of Jesus around 95 AD during the reign of Domitian, an emperor of Rome that encouraged, even commanded emperor worship. There was tremendous amount of persecution amongst the Christians, towards the Christians during Domitian's reign, during the time of this writing. Many of them, the Christians, are becoming weary, but they, the Ephesians, suffered for Jesus and were not growing weary. I want you to see this is a tremendous commendation. But that's the Greek word, Allah, not not the Aramaic word Allah, means something totally different. This Greek word Allah is the word but. There are two words in the Greek language generally used for contrast. This is the strongest of them. But, but, look look at all that you have done, but you have forsaken your first love. Let me just say here, I don't believe that it's that the proper way to write this, to translate it, is first love with capital letters. It's not that they're forsaking Jesus, though as I describe this, that's pretty much what they're doing, but they are forsaking their initial love. They're not forsaking Jesus, they're forsaking their love that they once had for Jesus. And so some would translate this as highest love, and therefore you're forsaking Jesus. But see, they're they're suffering hardship for his name. So it's not so much Jesus that they're abandoning, but something has happened. A toxicity has crept into the church, eaten away at it, much like my wonderful impatience last year. Some of them died because of disease, and I still don't know how that happened. I just, I just pulled them up. 
I, the plant was almost dead, and I just said, you know what, it's, it's, I need to do it now because it's so toxic, it's going to affect the other plants around it, and so I pulled it up. Something has crept into this church. Somehow, they have come to a place that though they are fervently standing against lies and against deception and standing for truth, they have done so to the point where they have forsaken this initial love. And I'm going I'm to suggest, he's not talking about your highest love, but your initial love for your highest love. The word first can be translated either utmost or highest or initial. And I would suggest initial. If you were to look at later, he says, you have forsaken your first love. Repent, remember from which you have, the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first, initially. So I'm going to suggest Jesus in this letter is focusing on this concept of initial love. What's, what's the big deal about this? So it's not so much that they're forsaking Jesus. Because I think many in the church would realize, whoa, am I following Jesus? No, of course not. I actually preach the gospel. I actually persevere for Jesus. I haven't forsaken him. But you see, you have forsaken your initial love for Jesus. What does that look like? These people, they, they... suffered hardship for the name of Jesus. Let me just give you a quick example. If you were to look through church history, the first couple of hundred years, you see this church, and and it kind of just gathers momentum for the first century on into the time of the creeds. Do you know why they had to hammer out creeds? It is because heresy, deception, teachings of demons crept into the church. Men like Arius, who said Jesus was simply a created being of God. He wasn't God. Then why do we worship him? The the obvious conclusion was we we, we shouldn't worship Jesus. If If he is not God, why am I putting my faith and risking my life for him? He's simply a man or some created being. And the first commandment is serve and worship God alone. I'm not going to serve and worship Jesus, but see, we're commanded to. Why? Because he's God. Arius disagreed with this. And he kind of did a song and dance and some spiritual gymnastics, if I could word it that way, with certain scripture passages that he misunderstood and clearly misunderstood. Athanasius just came at him like a bull in a china shop. And, and he, was, he, was, he stood for scripture. And I'm not saying that Athanasius was like this, but let me just say this, that as heresies began to creep into the church, the church rose up and the church spoke out against these. They hammered out creeds. But when you look at the church and you look at some of the writings, origin, let, let me not say too much about origin. Origin, who wrote around 200, 225 A.D. He says this. We have those in our midst who still prophesy the word of the Lord, still raise the dead. And he lists a couple of spiritual gifts that 
Some in our day today say died out with the first century. They obviously did not. But he says this, but they are rare among us. And then he says why? And he says, because there are not many godly in our day. Wow. What? See, the early church around Origen's time, oh, if they had just gotten a hold of this letter, you guys, you're doing great. You're speaking against lies. You're standing for truth. Amen. Keep doing that. Just don't forget that initial passion you had for Jesus. Because you are. And Jesus says to you too, be careful. This toxicity, it's going to kill truth. People are not going to want to believe truth if they don't see this love in you. Because just let's understand, if you fall out of love with Jesus, you will not know how to love your fellow man. It has to start there. The world's doing its best to love one another and they come up with some really weird ideas. Trust me. It has to start with Jesus. That initial love that you had for Jesus when you first gave your heart to him, go back to that. Stand on it, root in it, incubate in that love again. Because you're so busy fighting, even one another, it's no longer about this Jesus and this passion and relationship with him. Like a, a boat sailing through the ocean. And you've got Jack Sparrow's compass and it's leading you where your heart desires and not. You don't know where true north is. Oh, you've got the truth. But you stripped it. You stripped it of this love for Jesus and this hunger and desire for him that you become toxic. And Jesus says to them, this type of Christianity, I can't allow it. You need to understand that though you speak out against the liars and the deceivers of our day, you are so toxic, none of them want to follow Jesus because they see your venom. They see your spite. They don't want to have any part of that church. We live in that day. We are speaking out so strongly against homosexuality that we have become so offensive to the LGBTQ community. I'm not saying that we say, oh, yeah, that's not a sin. I'm not saying that. But when we speak, sometimes I think Jesus says, I'm sorry, to the pastor, I'm sorry, can you just close your mouth right now? Your words are so toxic. You will never win them how you talk about them. See, Jesus did not, when he was invited to Levi's house, just for a moment, think about all of the types of people that were there. Sinners, as the Pharisees called them, all over the place. Probably just about every single one of them. Some sort of deep corruption in their souls, unsaved, unregenerated. As Jesus called them, they were sick. But how did, what did Jesus do? Did he stand on some platform and decry their sin? See, he had a better way. And I'm not saying we shouldn't speak out against this, but how do you do it? Do you speak out against it in a way that wins them to Jesus? See, that's what Jesus did. He spoke truth, 
But see, he did it in love because he remained in the Father's love. And so it wasn't just truth, it was love that came out. And when we start speaking truth, 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 without love, that is a toxicity that does not belong in the kingdom of God, and he will root it out. You have represented an aspect of Jesus, but you have lost the very heart and soul of the gospel, of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm coming down hard on this issue because I believe the letter does. Other letters come down hard against the lies that the people are living. So I'll I'll get there. But Jesus, it's as if he, he wants to decry the sin that's in the church. But before he does, he recognizes a church that appears to have it all together. Oh, man, you stand for the truth. Yes. But wow, you do it the wrong way. Now, watch me. I'm about to speak to sin. And he's going to speak to it firmly, church. But it's redemptive. It's not toxic. But I tell you what, it is firm. So can you hear this balance? Truth, yes, truth. But how are you speaking? How are you living it? I want to ask you this. I got to skip ahead a little bit in my notes here. Why do you follow Jesus? And some of you are going to say, because I I just truly love him. Maybe elaborate on that. Okay. Maybe some of you say, well, all my friends go to this church. I mean, hey, why not? Being a Christian, as I look around, it seems to be pretty cool. And many of them, they get baptized in water. And they just have no idea that the reason why they follow Jesus is because their friends are. Or maybe their family does. Here's a test. Take away all of those friends. Take away the families that follow Jesus. Do you continue to follow Jesus? When there's no motive, or at least if it's that motive, that motive is gone, do you still follow Jesus? And I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus is going to test you. He's going to, many times, and I've seen this happen in my life, he takes things out of my life, and he says, Mike, do you still love me? Do you, do you still want to follow me? Because if we come to the conclusion, it's not worth following Jesus, it is because you have fallen out of love. Let's get back. Why do you love? Why, so why do you follow Jesus? Maybe we say, people admire Christians. Okay, maybe not in our generation, but people admire Christians. And it's nice to have a resume that talks at least about the, all these good things that I have done in the community. And you're applauded. Oh, you're a leader. We want you on our team. Even the world recognizes this. So, you, hey, how many Listen closely to them. How many Republican candidates, I'm going there, have on their resume, I go to this church and I have done this, that, and the other? Great. One-on-one, here's my question for them. Why do you follow Jesus? Let me hear your heart. Now, I can't judge them whether they're true Christians or not. I, I just don't know. That's not my place. That's above my pay grade. That belongs to Jesus. But I tell you what, if you don't have a passion to follow Jesus, I'm not sure I want you in office. But 
If you go to church and you have a nice little resume that says you're a Christian because you go to a Christian church, let's take that away. Let's say you lose your race. How passionate are you for Jesus now? I'm going to move on. Sorry. I'm going to move on. People trust Christians more. And they'll do more deeds. Consequently, if I'm a Christian businessman, maybe they'll trust me. Maybe they'll hire my company because I have a little fish on the back of my van. I'm all for fishes. Don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm, I'm messing with you. But we can have fishes on the back of our truck, and I have to say, great, but so what? And we use Christian symbols because we're appealing to the Christian to hire me. I'm trustworthy. I'm not saying you're not, but do you follow Jesus because it's good for business? Hmm. Maybe we should think about that. Being a Christian, following Jesus impresses people. And they'll think well of me, and they might even like me. While the others cancel me, I might be liked by some, right? The truth, though, is that there is only one motive, one reason for why I follow Jesus. And any other reason will eventually become toxic. And it must be that I love him. And if I love him, I, I just I want to be with him. I want to spend time with him. Well, I'm going to do it. Just bear with me. I'm going over time. I, I did a study two, two weeks ago, two Wednesdays ago with the men. There were some ladies there too, but generally for the men. And, and we went over, and we just touched on seven. There's more. But... When our pilot light, our fire, our flame for Jesus begins to dwindle down, how do we ignite that again? Now, now understand, by grace, through faith. That, that, that's what this is all about. I can't just say, oh, Jesus, fill me up with your love. And yet every day I get up when my alarm goes off and I'm hitting the ground running until I put my head down at, on, at night and I never fill myself up with the word, worship, prayer, fellowship. It is just about business and getting work done. That is a recipe for total burnout. And so how do, it is always God igniting this flame as we yield to him. But here's, here's certain things that we can do to yield to him, meditating on the word. And I'm just gonna say, if you're not regularly getting in the word and, let, and, and not just knowing it theologically, that was the problem of the Ephesians. They knew the word theologically, knew it was right. And sometimes I can only imagine the reason why they fought for it was to tell everybody I'm right and you're wrong. And it was all about them and not Jesus. We live in a day like this. I'm ashamed when I hear nationally known men speak the way they have. And then they've spoken out against, I believe, against error, but how they have done it is just, wow. Maybe you could have listened to Jesus, to his Holy Spirit, before you said that. Maybe. 
But let's get into the word and, and incubate. Just let the word drench you. Soak in it. So much that could be said on that, I don't have time. But saturate yourself in the word. I'm sorry, you know what? That was supposed to be number two. Saturate yourself in the word. Number one. And, and I need to say this. This is number one. Meditate on the cross. It has to start there. Because the one who died on that cross and rose, it is all about him and me living for him. Not just enduring persecutions for his name, but loving him. This is a relationship with him. It's not about all of these good little deeds that I'm doing, like the little hamster on the treadmill. Run, 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 run. And, and maybe if he gets enough water and maybe he gets enough sustenance, he can keep doing it over and over and not become weary because the Ephesians, they were committed, you're not even becoming weary. Well, they have found some really human-centered motivations to keep going that many people don't and they burn out but then turned around and said, we must be doing it right. But see, guys, you're not. You've forsaken your first love. Somehow they've managed to stumble across some principle. Maybe they found a best-selling book, top 10 best-selling book, New York Times, and they found it. And here's how you can persevere through times of hard. Well, I tell you what, if it's not about Jesus, I don't want it. And see, somehow they managed not to become weird. I'm going to just tell you, focus, meditate on the cross and what he has done for you. Just write this verse down, 2 Peter 1, 9. 2 Peter 1, 9. I, I, I can't get into that. What a powerful verse. Mm. You become short-sighted and you have forgotten that your sins have been forgiven. That's why they're not growing. Wow. Another time. Listen to worship. Engage in worship. Number three, regularly. Just let worship minister to you. Worship connects us relationally. We're something so unique about worship. You sing it. It is truth. You engage in physical, demonstrative expressions, lifting of the hands, bowing down, shouting to the Lord. Numerous ways that the scriptures, Old Testament and New, by the way, talk about how we engage in worship. We do so in truth, according to God's word. Worship is just different than preaching. It engages every facet of my being, and it was created to do that. But worship, and men, careful here, even I can be this way, well, I would rather just sit in the word rather than engage in worship. Don't, don't do that. I mean, I love to have the word of God and just, I, I love studying it, but I also love it transforming me. But here's where worship is different. Worship takes these truths and it is so focused and personalized, my heart to his. That's worship. It connects, it engages. Prayer does this a little bit differently, but prayer as well. Men and women of prayer, so important. If we do not do this, we will eventually move towards this place of forsaking our first love and becoming toxic. Spend uninterrupted time in prayer. Run to God in every situation. What is that, number five, I think it was? Run to God in every hard situation. Don't shake your fist at him. Maybe emotionally, that's what you want to do. And if you do, 
eventually turn it to this. Okay, God, I'm yielded to you. I didn't need to fight. I fought you. You're winning. But Lord, just right now, I surrender these emotions to you. I don't understand why this is happening the way it is. But church, run to him, run to him, run to him, run to him. Just like the lost son went to the father. And I'm going to tell you this, God can run harder than you. See, the father ran to the son and embraced him and kissed him. Run to the father. Uh, Again, so much more um, I I just can't get into. Um, But I will say this, that if you are allowing the world and all of its pleasures and distractions, and not all of it is bad, church, it's not. But if that becomes our focus, if we get distracted by that, it will do so much more harm than good. Okay, what are you filling yourself up with? So here's the bottom line. They were commended next for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, which was just a form of heresy I won't get into. Uh, There's some speculation. Irenaeus in 185 in his book Against Heresies talks about the Nicolaitans. We don't know if that's completely true. Uh, He's writing 100 years after this letter is written. But can I just say this? In our generation, if you read through how people blog these days and how pastors preach from the pulpit and how Christians are arguing and fighting and many times standing for truth in what is going on in our nation, but the atmosphere of Jesus' church is very quickly becoming toxic for two reasons. Number one, they're forsaking their first love. And other Christians look at them, or people who say they're Christians, look at them and say, well, I don't want that. And then they embrace this thing that they call Christianity that is anything but. Can I just, we're going to close in prayer right now. But where are we? Have you lost that initial passion and love for Jesus? He gives a very simple remedy. Repent and do those things you used to do. Wow, I used to, I can remember so many people sharing testimonies when they first came to Christ. They were just in the word constantly, just being refreshed from the truth. But it was as if I've been filled up enough. I'm okay now. I can go about life now. I'm ready. And that's where they leave their Bible. That's where they leave their, their, their prayer closet. They leave it behind. And, and Jesus is saying, no, church, come on. Follow me. Allow me to carry you when you need that. And some of you, today you need Jesus to carry you. You're hurting, you're brokenhearted. Just let him carry you. Let him speak words like in the Song of Songs where the beloved sings over, or the the lover sings over his beloved. Let him do that for you. We serve a singing God who loves you so much and he sings songs of love over you. Can you hear them? Can you accept them? Regardless of where you have been up to today, church, let's just repent. Let's turn back to that initial love. When we embrace the gospel and the spirit of God We felt so clean, so renewed, 
looked to him. And there was something so powerful about that. Let me just say this. So many of you, that's where you live right now. You've learned the secrets that this is talking about. But some of you have not. I'm going to close in prayer. this letter relates to you. However the Spirit is speaking, let the church hear. That's what he says here. Let's do something right now. We're going to close in prayer. Let Jesus call you to himself right now. Can you do that? You, you can come to the altar you can kneel where you're at. You can sit. That is up to you. But we're going to pray right now, church. Okay, let's do that. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his church derives its name, the called out ones, disciples, followers of Jesus, this is who we are. As we kneel before you, God, we are asking, do in our hearts today what you need to do. If we have become toxic, God, remove that from our soul. Reach into our heart, pull it out, and put in the love of Jesus, not just simply truth, love. Truth and love should never be divorced. Truth and grace, never divorce. Please, Father, let us walk in them. And if we have lost our way in this, God, right now, call us. Give us ears to hear. Call us, Jesus. And let our hearts respond. Wash away of that toxicity, God. We've been in the fight so long, we've become hardened. So soften our hearts. Would you help us, God? Lead us to those quiet waters and to those green pastures and may our soul be restored. <laughs> and I just ask you, Father, do this in our hearts. Do this in Powerline. Do this in our city, in the city church. Do this throughout the world, God. Let your church rise up in complete unity, loving one another, loving you with all of our hearts, as well as standing for truth. Please, God, hear our cry. him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Restore us, God. In Jesus' name.